Everyone, get your technology or your Bibles out. I've gone back to my old school Bible because I just like the pages. I also like my old school Bible has a tail on it. Whether it's your phone, your iPad, or your old school Bible, just kind of hold it up a little higher than you normally do and just say, I love my Bible. Come on, I love my Bible. Come on, this is, this is the Word of God. This is, this is where life comes to you, where you see precept, where God says this is how it works. And when you get a hold of it, it's the game changer. So I love my Bible. I want you to fall in love with your Bible. And we've been teaching these last few weeks, and next Sunday, Bishop will be up to bat. And he's going to be sharing some more on the mosaic. That's what we've been talking about. The mosaic is God's plan for the city church. And uh, we have been teaching, and I'm going to review for just a moment. If, if you've been here through the whole series, just bear with me. I, I, I have this teacher thing in me. That's why, that's why when we received this free smart board, I, I hugged it for about an hour. I just... I. I just had this teacher thing in me. But mosaic, as you can see, the glass, the triangle glass behind the mosaic. It was interesting because I, I've been having people come up to me and they're seeing things out of the glass. For example, you know, some of these triangles are totally different colors than other triangles, right? That indicates that, that every piece is a little bit different as we join together, we become this mosaic. But there were others who said, isn't it interesting that out of all the little triangles, sometimes big triangles form. And they're all this, almost the same color, if not the same color. Which was speaking to them that there will always be churches that kind of have the same flavor. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. You can see some greens connected here because there's the same flavor, the same DNA. I believe this yellow one is like the Pentecostal one right here. This is right there. Amen. But they're seeing things in this mosaic and, and that encourages me because if you can look at this glass, this mosaic glass and begin to see things, that's telling me that you're hearing things. And this is what God's church was intended to look like in the earth. It was intended to look like a mosaic. The word mosaic, we told you, is a combination of diverse elements forming a more or less coherent whole and so the picture of the mosaic basically is a beautiful it's almost like stained glass and it's beautiful because as as the light of the lord begins to shine in the earth it comes through the mosaic of his church and it begins to paint this beautiful picture that together we begin to form the coherent whole of the church remember you're at church right now. We are Legacy Church. We are ALC. But we're not the church. We're a local church. And someone has said, and rightly so, and I believe it, and I'll just say it out loud, and next week Bishop will come and he will correct me over all the things that I may have missed. And he's at liberty to do that. Because I'm on the front end of this revelation. He's walked in this thing for decades. Uh, but some have rightly already said that if those of us who are from Legacy and those of us who are from ALC 
cannot get the concept of mosaic down here as we exist together here, then we've got nothing to export. Isn't that true? If we, if we can't dwell together as tribes, if we, can't, if we can't see each other as the church, if we can't function each other with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, if we can't, if we can't figure out how to do this here, we've got nothing to export to this city. So it's incumbent upon us that we become the first fruit that I believe God is creating in our midst. And I'm speaking prophetically now. We're becoming a first fruit of really what the heart of God is with regards to the mosaic. And so we're going to talk a little bit more today on a lesson that... Somebody asked me one time, they said, what's the most important message you've ever preached? The one that I'm fixing to give you at the moment. I'll say the same thing next week and the week after and the week after. That's just how it works in me. What's your favorite message? The one I'm doing right now. But I am serious when I say this one has some significant ramifications because I've entitled it the glue that holds the glass together. The glue that holds the glass. You see the mosaic, all those different triangles of glass. Something has to hold all of that together. Otherwise, we'd just have a bunch of glass everywhere, wouldn't we? So what's the glue that holds it together? God's people are the light of the world. The church is the conduit of Christ's light. It shines through a city church to form a kaleidoscope of beauty. When God begins to shine through this kaleidoscope, we begin to see the beauty of the Lord. We see His awesomeness. His power can begin to flow because it will take a city church in order to reclaim a city. But what is the glue that keeps it all together? The glue is what we call covenant. Covenant. Now I want to read a story to you out of 1 Samuel. So you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. It's kind of a section that almost is overlooked. But it is such a critically important moment in the life of David and in the future of his kingdom. And understand that the Messiah's kingdom was always related back to the Davidic kingdom. Is that not really a fascinating thought? Imagine if you were David that you would become you would become the illustration or you would become the prototype of what the messianic kingdom of what the fullness of of Christ's rulership would look like. It's 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 referred back to the Davidic kingdom. And so if the Davidic kingdom hadn't happened like it happened, then, then we would never have an illustration of exactly what the Lord may be looking for with regards to His church in the earth and the nation of God's people uh, that He is creating and His raising up. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, there's a story that I want to read to you. So let's, let's look at it together as I read it to you. It has to deal with David and with Jonathan, who is the son of of the current king Saul it says now when he had finished speaking to Saul meaning Jonathan all right so Jonathan his son is talking to his dad now when he had finished speaking to Saul the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul 
Now, let me stop here for just a moment. There isn't anything twisted, convoluted, or perverted in that passage. I stop and say that is because we are now living in an era where there are interpretive methods going out that is trying to justify perverted relationships. And I'm pretty clear about this on numerous fronts. But David and Jonathan were two men that loved each other, but there was nothing more than the love that could exist between any two men. It wasn't, it wasn't sexual, it wasn't twisted, it wasn't convoluted, but it was indeed a love. And we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and he loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant. Now, if you have your old school Bible, that might be a place you'd like to underline. Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. An important phrase. A covenant is made because you love someone as your own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor even to his sword and his bow and his belt. We're talking about the glue that holds the glass. Now, one of the signs, I believe, of a decaying culture, and honestly, a decaying church, is when they lose the concept of covenant. Paul said that in last days, we would see an increase in many, many things. Those of you that read 1 Timothy 4 as well as uh, 2 Timothy 3, he gives quite a list that we can read there of things that will happen during the era of last times. And one of the words that he uses there, depending on what version you're looking at, is the phrase truce breaker or covenant breaker. So Paul says that in the end times, in last days, one of our challenges is going to be that we will become a people who break covenant. Now, it's not just a cultural problem, but honestly, I think the church has lost completely the concept of what it means to function in a covenant. Now, our story of David and Jonathan in this covenant ceremony opens the can as to what a covenant relationship looks like. In fact, it opens the can in such a way that we begin to see that if this doesn't work out, it will directly affect how the kingdom, this Davidic kingdom, which will be the illustration of the Messianic kingdom, will begin to unfold. And so they had to get a hold of covenant. Now you have to understand in those days, it's not like our days, in those days they didn't, you couldn't go down the street and go to Bernstein, Weinstein, and Epstein law offices and get yourself a lawyer and write you up a contract, and everybody gets their signature, and then you figure out how this relationship is going to work, and then you go forward. That's how we do it in America in the day we're living in. We work by contract. In those days, really, it should be in every era, they worked by covenant. Now the question comes up is this. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? The only time I ever hear the word covenant anymore is when maybe you're moving into a neighborhood or a condo and everybody gets in an uproar over the covenants and restrictions. Have you been in a neighborhood that has an HOA with covenants and restrictions? You know what this is all about. <laughs> a covenant, a covenant, I always thought a covenant was something that everybody gathered together to argue about. 
I mean, that's how we kind of treat it these days. But that's not what a covenant is. A covenant, interestingly, a covenant is a mutual understanding between two parties. It is a binding, some kind of a binding to fulfill certain obligations. And some people even define it as a legal contract. I can tell you, in the days that David and Jonathan lived in, that a covenant was as strong as any contract you would write today. Now, as I say that, I'm wanting to caveat it because in the day we're living in, contracts don't mean much. You write a real estate contract, and if you want to get out of it, there's always a way to wiggle out of it. It's always amazing how when you want to buy something, like your house, you have to sign about 15 pages. That's, that's how we are, because everybody wants, they, they, they're wanting somehow or another to stick it to you, to get it to you, to find a loophole. That, that's just the era we live in. Wouldn't it be great if everybody could just strike a deal and walk in their integrity and just say, you know what, we're going to do this thing right. But that's not how it works. So we have to create more and more and more pages. When we closed on our house, I'll never forget, the first house I ever closed on, there was a stack of papers maybe about that high that I had to sign. When I closed on this last house and had to sign papers, there was a stack about like that. Why is that? Because it's a testimony of the depravity of man. We have, we have spiraled to the place where banks don't trust those who are wanting money to lend or to receive. We don't trust the bank. The bank doesn't trust the builder. We don't trust the builder. And so everybody's got their fingers in it to try to find a way that we can make sure we're safe and secure. And the only way we can be sure we think of being safe and secure is, is that we just create more paperwork. I signed a paper that said that I believed the, the previous paper that I signed. I'm not joking. You're smiling and you're saying, oh, that's just a preacher joke. I'm not kidding. It was a, I signed a paper and I said, what's this paper for? And the lawyer, who was almost ashamed to say it, he goes, well, basically what you're saying is the previous paper that you signed, you really did mean it when you signed it. Welcome to 21st century America. That's contractual, but we're talking now covenant. The actual Hebrew word for covenant, now just stick with me. I'm teaching you here a little bit, but how many of you know pastor will always get to the beef? I'll get there, just stick with me. The Hebrew word is the word berith. The Hebrew word actually means a treaty, an alliance, or an agreement, or a pledge. In fact, if you follow the etymology of the word, it literally means to cut. That was interesting to me. And what it meant by that, to cut, is that when covenants were made normally in, uh, in the uh, Near East, that once the covenant was made, and we'll get to this in just a moment, arms, sometimes wrists, were cut in order that blood could be mingled in order to signify that there was a ratification to the reason that you were binding together. You would literally have to be cut. Do you know in your covenant with God, there was something that was cut? The the Jews had something that was cut, not to be indelicate, but the men went through circumcision. There was a cut in this covenant. And I guarantee you, the men, especially if they were older, when they converted, remembered that covenant. But don't think there wasn't something cut in you. The Bible says that while we're no longer circumcised or have to be circumcised according to the flesh... The scripture tells us that it's now our hearts that have been circumcised. And so God comes by his spirit and he cuts something in you or out of you. 
in order to create this covenant that will exist between you and him. Now, there are different kinds of covenants. And this is the part that people get confused on. Because they read through the Bible, they see the word covenant, and they don't realize that sometimes there are different covenants that are being spoken of. Now, there are covenants that are, for example, the greater to the lesser. In other words, someone of greater stature wants to make a covenant with someone of lesser stature. You really don't see many earthly covenants that are like this, except the one that Jesus came to ratify, which first started with his father. For he who held everything wanted to cut a covenant with you who have nothing. The greater to the lesser. You want to talk about who got the good deal on that one? We did. We did. So, so and this is what's interesting about this covenant, and I'm just teaching now on, on, our, on our covenant as believers, is that the only way for this covenant to happen is when the greater initiates it with you. Because for you to initiate it with the greater, that would be like, what are you doing, man? You, got, you, you bring nothing to the table. So the greater has to initiate the covenant, which is what God did with all of us. The second kind of covenant is between equals. There are two people who uh, perhaps are equal, maybe in their status, their financial status, or, or their status in the earth, and they have mutual concerns that they're wanting to come together for that will benefit one another. They're equal and they strike a covenant because they want to benefit each other. Now, some covenants, this is what people don't understand. Some covenants are perpetual covenants and some are temporal covenants. And there are reasons for why some are temporal and some are perpetual. There are also some covenants that are irrevocable and other covenants that are revocable. So as you read through the Bible, you have to kind of be aware that when you're, when you're looking at the word covenant, you've got to understand that there can be some other things that you might need to do a little more in-depth study. For example, there, have been, there were times, did God not say, he swore on himself. When God swears on himself, I'll tell you, it, you can count on it. It's irrevocable because he's sworn on himself. But there were other times that the Lord would say things like, if you obey me, then will I do these things. So what that saying is, he's saying, I'll do it, and I'll do it even within our covenant relationship, but it can be revocable if you aren't going to pay attention to me. So all of these things are swirling around the concept of a covenant. I will tell you this, there is no more serious biblical concept in the scripture than a covenant. Super serious. Most of the time when covenants were made, they had life and death ramifications. In fact, the last vestige in our modern society of covenant, the last thing that we have held on to, and it's in the ICU unit right now, is the covenant of marriage. This is the last vestige of what we see in modern days of an Old Testament covenant. And if you go through a wedding ceremony, most of the time to this day, you can see numerous features of a normal wedding ceremony that begin to speak of what it means to enter into a covenant. You, you make promises to one another. Uh, you exchange things with each other. You make vows. Uh, you do numerous things with one another as you're making this, this covenant. Now let me tell you the difference. This is important. 
and I'm, I'm, I'm belaboring the point. And the reason I'm belaboring the point is, is because we will never get city church. We will never get local church unless we get covenant down. Let me tell you the difference between a covenant and a contract. A contract, this is, this is the best, this is the fastest way to get there. A contract is business. A covenant is relationship. That's probably the fastest way I can get there. A contract is business. A covenant is relationship. Have you ever heard people say things like, they say, that, you know, there's, there's something, they're doing business with each other, and something happens, and they get crosswise with each other. Have you ever heard this phrase? They're going, hey, 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 it's nothing personal. It's just business. Anybody hear that phrase? It's just business. It's just business. Don't get mad. Don't get emotional. Don't be angry. Sure, I found a loophole. You should have been smarter to close that loophole in that contract. It's just business. That's how business works. It's the way of the world. Listen, don't, don't take it personal. It's just business. This is what a covenant is. It's not business. This is personal. That's what a covenant is. You can't look at, you can't look, just think of it in a marriage ceremony. You can't look at your wife and simply say to your wife, simply say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go out on you. And she goes, what are you talking about? You can't go out on me. Ho, 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 ho. It's just business. She'll business you with a frying pan, won't she? Because it's not business, it's personal. But that's what a covenant is. A covenant is personal. When you enter into a covenant, you're just not entering into this thing because you have a mutually identifiable need that somehow can be met. But you're entering into this thing saying, saying, what Jonathan said to David, it said his soul was being knit. There was something that was being knit. This is relationship. I can't, I can't, I, I, don't, want to use, I don't want to use slang terms, but I can't look at my brother and them around and then look at them and go, it's just business. No, 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 man, it's personal. It's a covenant. Something deeper than just my signature on 25 pieces of paper covenant and we don't understand covenant we barely understand contract and in church life this is what's interesting even in a local church we don't get covenant you can take people through membership classes. You can take them through different things. You can have them sign membership applications. You can have them check boxes. They'll promise to do this and this and this. I've done all this through the years. And it is meaningless. Now, I'm not picking on anybody, but I'm just saying it's just meaningless because, because we look even at church life like it's a contract. And the minute we find our loophole, we can be gone. Right? That's how we view it. It's because we don't understand covenant. Now, why make a covenant? Well, the picture of Jonathan and David illustrate to us that there was a connection that needed to take place between these two gentlemen. And this connection was for God's purposes, which provided and would provide many benefits and blessings to the both of them. But at its foundation, it provides a sense of security. When you're in a covenant, 
there's a sense of security. It's the question that used to be asked, why should we get married? It used, it used, the answer to that question as to why we get married used to be so there'd be security, especially for the woman. Because, um, uh, and, and people, people don't know this, but you know why the government got involved in marriage? It's because there were guys that were marrying women saying that they were in covenant with them but then they'd walk away from that marriage relationship and before the government was involved in it they'd walk away from it and go do what they wanted to do and they'd take all their money and they'd take all their proceeds and their homes and their houses and everything and they'd leave their women their wives and their children destitute because they wanted to go do what they wanted to do because they didn't really believe what they said in fact in fact uh, i'm, I'm kind of going off course here but government got involved in order to enforce the covenant. In other words, you, you, you may want to leave, but you can't leave without leaving her something. So they got involved in it in order to make sure that we maintained our integrity in the covenant we claimed we were going to make. I've often said that we could drop divorce rates in America if we forced every couple that got married that when they wanted a divorce that they were forced to call everyone together that was in their original wedding ceremony, gather them up in a place for both of the couples to stand up in front of the congregation and to simply say these words, we lied. We lied. Now, you say, well, pastor, there aren't reasons to get divorced. Sure, there are reasons to get divorced. The Bible speaks of. I could give you three reasons biblically that a relationship might need uh, to go different directions but that's not the highest purpose there is in the in the will or the heart of god he he says when you make a covenant this is serious business you need to think about what you're making a covenant with and who you're making it with and all the things that it entails god has a covenant with his church and it's why we need one another it's because um nothing can be built without a covenant it's because Nothing can happen unless a covenant exists. How can you do anything in the life of a local church or even in a city church if a covenant doesn't exist? It's the same question we ask as to how you can build a marriage. How can you build on this relationship? How can you have kids? How can you buy a house? How can you get cars in your driveway? How can you do all these things? Sure, you can do it on your own. Nothing wrong with that. But the point being is you enter into this covenant in order to build a life together. Because you can do more together than you can do separately. And so covenant exists in order to give a sense of security to the future. Nothing can be built without a covenant. Hear me, cities will not be one. Why haven't cities been one? Despite the fact that there are mega churches, it seems like, on every corner. Why is it that there are more megachurches per square inch in America today than in any other time in history? Why is it that there are more church plants going on right now with people flocking to them and filling them up right now more, more than in any time in history? Why is all of this taking place and yet America continues to spiral and our cities continue to struggle? Why does this happen like it happens? It's because one of the reasons is we don't get covenant because you can't build something without it. You can't wage war without a covenant. I'm not going to war with anybody who really isn't in this thing. Isn't that true? 
Would you, go, would, you, would you wage war with someone you weren't sure? Some of you guys who've watched The Braveheart, you remember the last battle William Wallace faced where he earlier had made the commitment, and which is interesting because it was an old covenant ceremony. Remember when he looked at the future king, Robert de Bruce, and he puts his arm up and he says, Unite Scotland! Unite us! Unite us! I mean, Mel Gibson is just, his veins are sticking out of his neck. And Robert de Bruce grabs his arm. And in front of everybody, they have this moment. And then Wallace marches off to fight the next battle. And the, and, and, and the long story short is that out of that moment, de Bruce betrays him to the king of England. And there... William Wallace is in the battlefield. He's sitting there and you can see it in his face. It's the face of betrayal. When he looked, and you can you could write the subtitles, although he's saying nothing. He's saying, we had a covenant. We had a relationship. We spoke words. We made commitments. We are in a war. And you left me. That's why covenants were made. Because you can't go to battle without a covenant. Otherwise, what you find out is you're out there waging war and everyone else is watching you wage it. The church loses battles, not because God is not able, but because we've neglected covenant. I suspect after... I don't know, 40 years. I'm sorry, I don't know the exact number, Bishop. I'm, I'm sorry. However many years ALC has been in existence, I know the number of years, which is nearly, what, eight, 17 years, 16 years of legacy. Probably the greatest problem I think we face, probably I could name a lot of churches, has been the trivial nature of covenant. We will never, I'll say that again, we will never see the mosaic as God intended without embracing covenant, even in a city. So how is a covenant ratified? I'm, I'm getting to a good spot here. There are basically two ways that a covenant is ratified. It's ratified first by a divine connection. This is important. You don't yoke or covenant with just anybody. It works that way in marriage. That's why Paul said when you get married, you're not to be unequally yoked, Right? Now, if you did yoke unequally, the scripture also tells us that the believing spouse will sanctify the unbelieving spouse because the covenant is serious. And again, I understand there are people in this congregation right now that have divorce in your background. I'm not here to make you feel bad about your divorce. We can't do anything about the past. I don't know. You, you may have had biblical grounds and that's great. We're not even here to discuss that. I'm just here to tell you that all we can deal with is right now, this moment. And we've got to determine at this moment what, how it is we're going to go forward. And so there has to be this divine connection. If you're, going to, if you're going to covenant or yoke with somebody, you better sense that God is in it. Jonathan saw David and there was something that was there that caused him to want to reach out, probably an anointing, he probably knew in the background the prophecies that existed over David, but Jonathan... The son of Saul wanted to yoke. There was something that was in his heart that wanted to yoke 
with David and his destiny. He knew it was a God connection. I say this because when it comes to the city church, I'm not going to yoke with, and I'll just say it out loud, I'm not going to yoke with a liberal universalist who believes that, that all dogs go to heaven and it doesn't matter if you're a Muslim, a Buddhist, or you can worship a rock or a tree. I'm not doing that. That's, I don't yoke with that. That's a non-believer. I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through Him. And so my yoking is going to be exclusive with regards to I yoke with those who are on that same page. Because a covenant is only as good as the one who's ratifying it. And He's the one that's helping to ratify it. Okay? Now we get back to the defined entrance. How is a covenant ratified? You enter into a covenant by faith. That's what happens on the day you're married, for example. How do you know you can trust this person? Well, at at the beginning, you're doing it by faith. The only thing you really know at the beginning is you feel like God's in this, hopefully. I hope people are getting married and they sense God in it. I don't know that that's always the case. Sometimes it's just, I'm in love. Of course, it's amazing how long love lasts. But there's, there's a God moment in it. And, and, and you speak things by faith because there's no mileage under your belt yet. So what do you do? You say words, promises, oaths, declarations. That's how a covenant is made, usually with witnesses. So you have to understand when a covenant was made in the Old Testament between Jonathan and David, there would be words that would be spoken, promises, Oaths, declarations. That's an important part of a covenant. Words have power. In our day and age, words mean nothing. But words in that day in particular meant everything because they weren't ratifying on paper. They were ratifying because you could take people at their word. Secondly, there'd be blood. Sometimes sacrifice would be made, but other times the body would actually be cut which indicated it was serious. In fact, what you were saying in a covenant, this is what was interesting in an ancient covenant, is when you would cut yourself and you would enter into covenant and blood would be spilled, what basically you were saying is, is is let what happened, well, especially if you're sacrificing animals, like the Genesis 15 account says, let what happened to these animals and let the blood that is being spilt right now from me take place if I ever, if I ever uh, uh, violate this covenant. That's pretty serious, isn't it? I mean, if you knew that's what it was, you'd be, you'd be careful about who you entered a covenant with. And then thirdly, there were seals or things were exchanged. Of course, in a marriage ceremony, what do we exchange in a marriage ceremony? Rings, right? That's, that most people exchange rings. They're signs. This is a sign that I'm in a covenant, right? That's why people look at times if you go and you look at people's left hand and see if there's a ring, they still do it. Find out if, if they're in covenant or not token that we gave to one another in the account that i read to you in first samuel they exchanged what robes uh belts and weapons now wh- why why the exchange this is the most important thing about a covenant i think that we might be able just to land on in just a moment because when you make a covenant what you're saying is this everything that is mine is yours and everything that is yours is now mine That's what Jonathan and David were saying to each other. 
Jonathan was a king's son. He looked at David, who was, who was simply a military man at this time, but, but what they were, Jonathan was saying is, everything I have is now yours, and David was saying, everything I have is now yours. There was this, this exchange that was going on, but it goes deeper than this. It goes, all, now all of your enemies are mine, and all of my enemies are yours. See, we don't understand covenant anymore. This is the part, because I'm getting older and I have a heart towards pastors, and it's, it's the part that I really don't understand, is that pastors, especially if they're out there working in the culture and they get attacked, it's amazing how many people throw them under the bus and let's just let them get attacked. See, there's no sense of covenant anymore. You'd be amazed at how many times I've had to run to the defense of, of my church or people. You'd be amazed. Now, I'm not saying anyone's probably 100% or perfect in this thing, but if you're in a covenant, you've got to think about that. That if I've made a covenant in my heart, then I'm telling you what, you're going to come, you aren't going to come pick on my wife. If you pick on my wife, what happens? You pick on who? Me. You pick on me, you're going to pick on her. That's how it's supposed to work in a marriage. Covenant works that way. And, and the reason it was a benefit, because if a nation wanted to attack another nation and that nation was in covenant with this nation over here to the side, how many of you know they think twice before they go into battle? Listen, if we are, if we are allies with, let's say, Japan, and, and North Korea wants to attack Japan, how many of you know that before, before Kim Jong-un attacks Japan, even in his crazed demonic state, there's this little thing that probably spins in his mind that says this. If I shoot a bomb at Japan, I'm not just fighting Japan anymore. I'm going to fight who? The United States. These are the concepts of covenant. We don't do this anymore. Pastors don't covenant with one another in a city. If we see another pastor struggling in a city, I'm just talking from pastors... We, 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 here's our first thought. Our first thought is, well, when the church explodes, I hope some of those folk come our direction. I know. It's shameful. Absolutely shameful. Because we don't understand covenant. Now, there are three requirements for a covenant. These are the, these are the things that need to exist in order for a covenant to really be ratified and take place. It's the glue that's going to keep the glass together. It's what really has never existed, certainly in modern history and maybe all of history in America, although I think, I think in our early days of our nation there was far more covenant that existed uh, than, than does today. Today it's basically every man for himself. Today it's basically I got mine, you got yours, and you know you just stay there and I'll stay here. That's kind of how we look at things I think today. And it's so, it's so unbiblical. But there are three things, requirements for a covenant. These are three things I think that are going to have to exist in order for a city church to work. Three things that are going to have to exist in order for a local church and the people of God just to work together. These three things. And, and they're, they're always associated with a covenant. The first one is this. And don't discount me until you hear the whole thing. It's the word love. How will the world know who we are it is because of what we love one another right we love one another that's how the world will begin to know whether or not we're the real deal we love one another 
Now, love is the most abused word in the vocabulary today. We use love for everything. I love my wife. I love Jesus. I love my dog. I love pizza. I love Chinese food. I love the Eagles. Those Eagles won. I love the Eagles. Now, can we agree that maybe we mean something different when we say love between all of those statements, even though we use the same word? Can we agree to that? Because if you love your wife like you love your dog, there's something wrong. I know, I'm meddling now, aren't I, Andrea? I'm meddling. I'm meddling. But if you love, like if you love a restaurant or you love your sports team or you love, and, 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 some, and listen, this is important. Well, I love God, but I really love, I love my, I love my sports teams. Right, see, I'm just, I'm, I'm meddling now, but I'm messing with you now because it's important you get a hold of this. Love. In the Hebrew, the word was hasid. The word hasid actually is translated in most of your Bibles as loving kindness. The loving kindness of the Lord. Now, in the Greek or in the New Testament, uh, it's the word agape. And agape is different than eros, which means basically romantic love or a more sexual or sexualized type of love. Uh, phileo is another word which means same purposes, but agape means that which I will lay my life down for. This is the love that creates value. This is the love that exists when someone looks unlovable, you still love them. How do you think God loves us? God doesn't love us based on what we can do for him. God loves us because his love is agape. He can look at us and despite our rebellion, despite our sinfulness, despite everything that's wrong with us, he can look at us and he loves us. Is that not true? Come on, say amen. You better believe it's true because right now if that's not true, we're all in trouble. If he doesn't love me at my worst moment, we're in trouble. Because I'm going to have a worse moment. He creates value. That's what his love does. It creates value. It's not because you have intrinsic value. You don't. You're not much. But God loves you anyway. And because of his love, you become of great value. That's the part we don't get today, doctrinally. We, we have a generation that's grown up that thinks they're it. Yeah, I know God loves me. He ought to love me because I'm it. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're not it. You're pathetic. It creates value. Hear me, and I'm just making these like to a wedding ceremony. Why do you say words like this? And I've even had, I've even had couples lobby me to change the words of the wedding ceremony to what they want. And I refuse, I refuse to do it. Because this is what most wedding ceremonies say, and I think it's good. You say things like this, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, cleaving only unto you, for as long as we both shall live. How can you say that unless there's agape? Because what happens... What happens, God forbid, if one of you gets in a car wreck and you're in a wheelchair the rest of your life? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That changes covenant now. 
See, because I'm not going to get all my needs fulfilled, so therefore, uh, it's all... No, 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 that's not what you said. Covenant meant no matter what. What's yours is mine. What mine is yours. Your enemies are mine. My enemies are yours. Whatever state you are in, I am in it with you. Whatever state I am in, you're in it with me. We're in this thing together. Come hell or high water, it doesn't matter what gets thrown at us. It doesn't matter what season we're in. It doesn't matter if we win the lottery and we get $400 million or if we find ourselves living in a box under a bridge. It's you and me, baby. And that's what a covenant is. If you flood, I flood. Are you hearing? That's how it works. We don't get this much anymore. Now, now we don't mind it when we're the recipient of the good things of the covenant, but it's when we have to exert any energy in the covenant. Then it becomes difficult. Think about this. Think about Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of Saul. Who would have been the natural successor to the kingdom if things went the normal way they went in the ancient East? Who would have been the king once Saul died? Jonathan, right? Why would he have been king? Because he was his son, right? That's how succession would have happened. But Jonathan, listen to this, to his own detriment makes covenant with David. David, whom he knew had the prophecies and the anointing upon him in order to be the one who would succeed Saul because that's what God said because God was done with Saul. Jonathan, this is the part we miss about Jonathan, the depth of his spirituality, the incredible sacrifice and selflessness and love that he had. He had to have agape in this because he was willing to give up. In fact, I maintain that Jonathan looks more like Jesus than even David did. Because of everything that he had, he poured out his kingly inheritance, Jonathan, and said, I'm in covenant with you, and, and I'm going to take everything off. You're going to wear my robe. You're going to wear my belt. You're going to get my, you're going to get my uh, 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 weapons. You're going to get the whole deal. And you know what? I will willingly lay down myself and my rights in order to see what's going on by way of God in your life. That's what we do. We do these. This is covenant. So radical. Because we don't get it in America. We've got to get ours. I got to go. Hurry. Loyalty. Loyalty. We mentioned loyalty in another Mosaic message. We talked about convoluted loyalty in that message. But within covenant, there's an appropriate loyalty. And just like anything, there can be a counterfeit loyalty, a convoluted loyalty, and there can be a genuine loyalty. A marriage, would you not agree, will not last long without loyalty neither will a friendship although we use these words don't we well they're a friend really they're your friend well yeah i've been i've been on facebook with them now for seven years they're a friend what does that mean we we, we use these terms loyalty loyalty must exist in a family one of the things we told our kids early in life is that uh, there's 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 a loyalty in the family 
that you want us to be loyal to you. You want me to go in and defend yourself, defend you before teachers and challenges and people who are picking on you. If you want dad to step in for you on occasion for you, then you need to understand you got to be loyal too. That's what covenant looks like even in a family. There's a loyalty that exists. There's loyalty. Everywhere you go, there's loyalty. It used to be years ago. Some of you remember growing up. I remember growing up in the 60s, and I lived outside of Chicago in the 60s, and I can still to this day tell you the lineup of the 1969 Cubs. You know why I can do that? Is because for about 10 years, it was the same lineup. I could go Randy Huntley, Ferguson Jenkins, Ernie Banks, Glenn Becker, Don Kessinger, Ron Santo, Billy Williams, Al Spangler. I, could, I still to this day remember the lineup of the 69 Cubs. Because in those days when somebody joined a sports team, they were loyal to their city. They just didn't leave their city. You can't get an athlete to be loyal to a city or a team anymore. It's, it's his wares go to what? The highest bidder. They're going to make theirs. It's just the way the world works. Grow up, Pastor. Just how it works these days. Well, I guess it works that way in church too. Because the minute something brighter, shinier, glitzier, newer, neater, younger, faster, shinier comes around, you watch, you watch everybody start shifting in a city. We don't win the lost, we just shift the sheep. I love the idea of a city church. But some people will hear, when I say city church, this is what they'll hear. Well, since we're all one church, then I can float and jump and go anywhere because we're all one church. Listen, Charleston hasn't been impacted because we, we always are jumping ship and we won't build something together. We, we, ex, we accept, we receive, we appreciate, we help, we reach out, we cheerlead, we do all the things we told you about up to this point. And I'll be the first one to say there are reasons and seasons for everybody and wherever they choose to go to church. I'm not saying that you're making a blood oath to come to Legacy. Go to the back. We're going to cut your wrists right after service. That's not going to happen. But we also have to understand, well, that isn't going to happen. Just because you get tweaked in a covenant doesn't mean your season's over. Just because your marriage goes through a hard time, it doesn't mean your season's over. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Sometimes your greatest growth will take place when you stay put and you press through a season. Sometimes your greatest growth will happen when all hell's raging around you and you're in the middle of a battle and you literally have to link your shield up with someone else and you actually have to fight and not run to go somewhere with someone who's in a season of peace. Because God's trying to say to you, it's time you learn to fight. Loyalty. Loyalty. I'm with you. Hell or high water, I am with you. Man, where is that gone? To my own detriment at times, I am with you. It's a part of a covenant. Aren't you glad that Jesus is with you no matter what? Aren't you glad that he's not like that in a covenant? Oh, I'm sure glad. I'm sure glad the Lord doesn't look at me going through a really rough season and go, see you later, there's a real hopping church over here that I'm going to manifest my presence in because they really got it going on. 
I do these things in order to hopefully paint pictures in people's minds. Loyalty. Then lastly, and we're done, is longevity. Longevity. Covenant means longevity. You know what I'm really excited about, sweetie? Is that together, you and I, this April, will have been officially married 36 years. 36 years. New, 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 new you a year prior to that. In fact, the first time, from the first day we met to the first moment when we, when we were married was 13 months. A lot of people say, that's awful fast. Baby, it wasn't nearly fast enough. I'll just tell you, that's, that's what I, I'll tell you that much. So about 37 years. Glad for that. But I, I can tell you right now that, that there were days, we've often said this, Divorce, divorce was never an issue in our household. Murder was an issue on occasion, but never, we did our best. There was, there was a time, there were some early year struggles there, no doubt. And we had to look at each other and say, you know what? We're, we're taking the D word out of our conversations. We're ta- there no more that we're going to suggest, threaten, or just get mad or angry and say it or whatever we're doing. These were in the early years. Now understand, we were married at 22 and 19. So we, we were in there for a few years, and finally we looked at each other and said, listen, the D word isn't in here anymore. It's just not, it's just not in here. And it did. You know why it changed a lot of things? Because what we said was, was this. Longevity. Longevity. Because you know, you know what the greatest? It's not an anointing. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a grace. It's just a track record that that I have reached the place in my age and in our relationship and our marriage that I can teach on things and I hope people listen because I got 36 years under my belt. Now that's not to say that if, if you've had challenges, it doesn't mean that in some ways you're disqualified. I'm not saying that, not saying it. But I am saying that somewhere you make, you, you make the stand and say, I'm in this thing. Maybe, maybe you've had... Maybe you've had a background and you've had some, some horrific stories you could tell and you have every reason under the book that you needed to get out of that relationship. And listen, I understand. I've told people. I've sat in my office just so you know and looked at people and I've said these words to people. You need to separate from them. And I've also said you need to divorce them. I didn't say you need to divorce them if there weren't reasons to divorce biblically, but I have said those very words. So hear me, but having said that, I've also walked with people saying, but let's do everything we can do before we just throw this thing out. Longevity, that's what a covenant is. Covenant has longevity to it. It's interesting because a couple chapters later, if I had read this whole account to you that Jonathan and David enter into another covenant, And it's actually for Jonathan's family because Jonathan knows that his dad is going crazy. And he wants to make sure that however this thing shakes out, that it's not just he who is covered under this covenant, but he wants to make sure his family is covered under this covenant. And and finally, Jonathan passes away. Saul obviously passes away. But David is now on the throne of all of Israel. And this is what David says. This is cool. He says, is there anyone in the house of Jonathan that I can show kindness to, that I can show agape, loving hesed to. You remember the guy by the name of Mephibosheth? When they were 
when they were racing to get out of town, he was dropped as a young child, and it actually, it actually broke his leg or hindered his leg to where he was, he was, he was crippled. And uh, because of how things worked in those days, you know, in those days, if, if another family took over the royal position that wasn't in the natural succession of the original family, what you did was you killed everybody in the old family because you didn't want any of those people claiming rights or heirship to the throne that you and your family were now sitting on. Do you get that? So the natural thing for David to do is to have killed the whole house of Saul. David doesn't do that. Why doesn't David do that? Because he had every right. Nobody would have even questioned him on his right to have been able to do that. The reason he didn't do it was because he had made a covenant that existed with Jonathan and even longer than that, even to Mephibosheth. And he says, is there anyone that I can show kindness to from the house of Jonathan? And they say, well, there's still Mephibosheth. And, and they run and get Mephibosheth. And he's scared to death to go to the house and the table of David, because he's thinking, I'm about ready to get killed. But they take Mephibosheth in before David, and David says, have a seat at my table. You will eat at my table. You will enjoy all the privileges of the palace. You will enjoy everything that I have. It will be now yours, despite the fact that you, you were of the household of my enemy. Here, listen, you now enjoy everything. Why? It is because we have a covenant. Is that not remarkable? And I'm telling you, I tell you, if God's restoring anything, He's restoring and needs to restore this concept of covenant. Now, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I started studying covenant this week, and I, I got before the Lord at the dinner table where I do my writing. And I just said, oh God, I'm looking through my life, and I haven't always done covenant so well. I told Bishop. In fact, I think, I think Bishop, I'm the only one that ever came to the back to the table and repented. I think you said that one time. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's my only claim to fame. I repented. Isn't that, that's your claim to fame. So it's embarrassing in one level, but then at another level, it's like, how do you get to be notable? Repent. Boy, isn't that backwards? Yeah, yeah, that sounds about kingdom, though. There's a paradox to the kingdom. I don't know about you, how you've done with covenant. Of course, some of you that are here, both with ALC and with Legacy, I have to commend you. Man, you've been through some... When we say hell or high water, we literally mean it here in this building. I mean, there's been high water. And there were some days it was hell. You're to be commended. And maybe you're the least of all crowds this needs to be preached to because you've kind of weathered a lot of things to your great credit. But I felt like the Holy Spirit wanted me to say it out loud that we're going to have to get a hold of covenant. We've got to get a hold of covenant here. And I'm just not talking about, about legacy, like legacy and ALC. I'm talking about legacy and ALC. Covenant. We're going to have to get it here. And we're sure going to have to get it out there. How, I, I don't even know where to begin with that. I'm, I'm, I'm in, my, in my mind, I'm just I'm racing going, how, how, how do you jump out of business and get to relationship? I guess that's the Lord. 
but that's something we have to pray about. So why don't we do that? Why don't we pray about it? Would you stand with me?